Two times God said that he established his covenant, yet nowhere do we see conditions of the covenant. God didn't say that he would establish his covenant with them if they did whatever. He didn't require anything from them when he established his covenant. God's covenant with us is unconditional. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In the last several episodes, I surveyed Genesis chapters 1 through 8. So I'm going to continue to survey Genesis. In this episode, we'll look at chapters 9 through 11. Let me begin by saying the first 11 chapters of Genesis set the stage for Abraham, the father of the Jews, and the father of the faith of Christians. So with that said, let me quickly bring us up to speed. In the first four chapters, we saw the creation of the material world, the fall of mankind, and the devastating effects of sin. In chapters 6 through 8, we saw the Noah story. Due to the effects of sin and wickedness in the world, God destroyed all living things with a global flood. However, he rescued one man and his family from that global flood. God called Noah to build an ark or a large boat and to gather two of each kind of animal. So God rescued eight people from the flood, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and two of each kind of animal. Yet there was more to this rescue effort. Certainly, God was being gracious to Noah by rescuing him. I mean, God didn't have to save Noah from the flood because Noah deserved it. He rescued Noah because it pleased him to do so. But at the same time, God had to rescue someone. Well, why is that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember that verse? It's God's promise to Satan that he will destroy him. But there's more. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is a prophetic glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would come to crush the serpent's head, the one who would defeat Satan. So God had to rescue someone in order to keep the promise to defeat Satan, because Jesus hadn't yet come. So with that quick review, let's begin to survey chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 9 immediately follows the global flood event and begins with God blessing Noah and his sons and calling them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. We saw the same call to be fruitful and multiply given to Noah in Genesis chapter 8 verse 17, and we see it again in Genesis chapter 9 verse 7. But we see something else in Genesis 9. In verse 2, God reestablishes man's dominion over the creatures. So it looks like it's the Garden of Eden 2.0. If you remember, God told Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and he gave Adam dominion over the creatures. Well, he's doing the same thing here with Noah. And this makes sense. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, there are only eight people on the face of the earth. And they would repopulate, so God reinstitutes the mandate he gave to Adam. However, we can't think that this is a great reset, as if things would go better than they did prior to the flood. Where Adam was sinless when God commanded him to be fruitful and multiply with dominion over the creatures, Noah was sinful. He was a fallen human being. Furthermore, we're going to soon see that things go off the rails fairly quickly. Something else we see in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 is the protection over man. We saw this in Genesis chapter 4 after Cain killed Abel. God instituted a measure to protect Cain even though he killed Abel. 
Well, what's the reason for this protection? Well, God tells us in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, he made man in his own image. Next, God established a covenant with Noah. Now, I think it's helpful at this point to define covenant. A covenant is a bond made between two parties. Think of it not only in a relational sense, but think of it also in a legal sense. Two parties make an agreement with stipulations. However, we have to see covenant differently concerning God. His covenant is unilateral or a one-way covenant. A bilateral covenant is a two-way covenant made between two parties. Each person has conditions in the covenant. Oftentimes, in a bilateral covenant, there were penalties when one party failed to keep the agreement. For example, fail to make payments on your car, and the finance company will repossess your vehicle. But God's covenant with us is not dependent on our agreement. His covenant is a one-way covenant. God promises that he's going to do something, and that something is not based on our keeping our end of the deal. Take a look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Two times God said that he established his covenant, yet nowhere do we see conditions of the covenant. God didn't say that he would establish his covenant with them if they did whatever. He didn't require anything from them when he established his covenant. God's covenant with us is unconditional. In other words, God enters into a covenant with us with no conditions on our part. That's why we're saved by grace through faith, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Our salvation is based on God's grace, not our works. And it's also based on God's promise, not our obedience. In Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family and all the creatures. And in that covenant, God promises not to destroy all living things with a global flood of water. And after God establishes his covenant, he issues a sign of that covenant. The covenantal sign of this promise is the rainbow. So when you see a rainbow in the sky, you know that God will never again destroy all living things with a global flood of water. However, I want to point out something here that I think is important. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. When there's a rainbow in the sky, God will remember his covenant. I find that interesting. The covenant sign isn't for you and me. I mean, we benefit from the covenant sign. When you see a rainbow in the sky, you're reminded that God will never again destroy all flesh with a global flood of water. But the sign isn't primarily for us. It's for God, even though we benefit. Well, this makes me wonder about the other covenant signs. Those signs are circumcision, Passover, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Now, as a quick side note, circumcision and Passover aren't administered in Christianity. We believe that Jesus changed the way that each one is administered. Circumcision was replaced by baptism, and the Passover was replaced by the Lord's Supper. But both of these New Testament sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the same sacraments as the Old Testament. They're just administered differently today. Nevertheless, these sacraments are signs of God's covenant with us. Jesus himself said the cup poured out was the new covenant in his blood. We see that in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. At this point, I think it will be helpful to review several catechism questions. Listen to question 92 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is a sacrament? 
And it answers by saying, A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So a sacrament communicates through sensible signs, signs that we can see, taste, touch, that Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, a seal is a mark of authenticity. Think of Roman times when someone would send a letter. He would drip hot wax on the letter itself, and then he would seal it with a signet ring. And this was proof that the letter belonged to the one that had the signet ring. The same is true with the sacraments. God marks us as his own with the sacraments. The sacraments are proof that we belong to him. And Christ and the benefits of the new covenant have been secured to us, sealed, confirmed. Is this because there is magic in the sacraments? No, the sacraments are signs of the promise of God. The power is not in the sacrament. The power is in the promise of God. The sacraments are signs of that promise or that covenant. So through water, bread, and wine, we know that Christ and the benefits of the new covenant have been represented, sealed, and applied to us. We've been marked by these signs. Now listen to question 94. It asks, what is baptism? And it answers by saying, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. So, baptism is a sign of our union with Christ and our entry into the church. Now, listen to question 96. And it asks, what is the Lord's Supper? It answers by saying, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So the Lord's Supper is a sign of our union with Christ in his broken body and his shed blood. Again, are these signs for us or for God? Well, certainly, it's for us and for our spiritual encouragement. In fact, Daniel Hyde calls the Lord's Supper the sacrament of nourishment. And his point here is that God nourishes our souls in the Lord's Supper. But with the sign of the rainbow in view, it seems the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper are for God more so than they are for us, that he marked us based on his promise. In other words, we are baptized and partake of the Lord's Supper, and he will remember his covenant with us. We certainly benefit, especially when we take the Lord's Supper, but it seems these signs are more for God than they are for us. Again, when you see a rainbow, you know that God won't destroy all flesh with the global flood of water. But when that rainbow is in the sky, God will remember his covenant. Do you realize what this means? God is restrained by his covenant. And when a rainbow is in the sky, God will remember his covenant and will not destroy all flesh with a global flood of water, though certainly we deserve it. God is restrained and obligated by his signs because they point to his covenant with us. Now, I want to make one more point here. God is obligated by his covenant, not your obedience. Do you know why God will save those in Christ? Because he made a covenant, and he's obligated 
by his covenant, by his promise. Now, I could go further here, but I guess I better get back to surveying Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 names the sons of Noah and a grandson. Why does Moses name one of the grandsons of Noah? Canaan, Noah's grandson, is the father of the people of Canaan, and his descendants will come into play soon. Verses 20 and following tell us why Canaan becomes a main character in the Genesis story. It also shows us that the flood event didn't solve the problem of sin and wickedness. So what happened concerning Canaan? Well, after the flood, Noah got drunk and was laying uncovered in his tent. And Ham, one of the sons of Noah, saw him uncovered and he told his brothers. Well, they covered him up while walking backwards so that they didn't see their father uncovered. When Noah woke up, he knew what had happened. He knew what Ham had done. Now look at his response in verse 25. Cursed be Canaan, who is the son of Ham. Now, you may be thinking, what's the big deal? So Ham saw Noah uncovered. However, there's something much more wicked going on here. This was so significant that God cursed Ham's son and his descendants. Keep Canaan in the back of your minds because his descendants will come into play later in Genesis. Next, chapter 9 concludes with the death of Noah. Then we come into chapter 10, and this is known as the Table of Nations. And it describes the nations that descended from Noah and his sons. And you have to keep in mind that chapter 10 likely covers several hundred years. And then we have chapter 11, which records the Tower of Babel event. And there we see at the beginning of the chapter that there was one language. And some people settled in a particular area and decided to build a tower. Now, is it wrong to build a tower? We have no command prior to this that forbids building a tower. So what's the issue here? Well, look at the second half of verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. You see the sin of man's heart revealed. They didn't build a tower to honor God. They built a tower to honor themselves. Do you see the arrogance? And do you remember how the serpent tempted Eve in Genesis chapter 3? He says in verse 5, God knows that you'll be like him. Now, there's another piece to this sin of these people. They refused to disperse, which was a blatant act of disobedience to fill the earth, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So God forced them to disperse by confusing their language. This place is called Babel, which is likely in present-day Iraq. Chapter 11 concludes with the descendants of Shem, one of Noah's sons, and we see this line from Shem to Abram, who is Abraham. Moses revealed to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness their connection to Noah, and it comes through Shem, not Ham. Remember, Ham was the one who told his brothers about Noah when he was in his tent uncovered. Therefore, Ham's son Canaan was cursed by God as a result of Ham's sin. The Israelites didn't come from Ham. On the contrary, we will soon see a major ramification of the curse of Canaan. Now, as a matter of quick introduction, the Canaanites, those descending from Canaan, settled in what is present-day Israel. This was known as the land of Canaan. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 and following introduce Abram. Abram will later get a name change to Abraham, but here his name is Abram. And he is the key figure in Genesis. And through him, the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 will come. 
Of course, this will take hundreds of years for Jesus to come, but Jesus is the seed mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he comes through Abraham. Take a look at Matthew chapter 1, and you'll see there the genealogy of Jesus, and you'll see his connection to Abraham. Now, coming back to Abram, he came from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in present-day Iraq near the Persian Gulf. And his father Terah intended to move his family to the land of Canaan, but they moved to Haran and settled there. And Haran is located in present-day southeastern Turkey. And this brings us to the end of Genesis chapter 11. And now the stage is set for Abraham, who again is the key figure in Genesis and the overall Bible story. So up to this point, what has God revealed to the people of Israel? Well, he showed them that he is a powerful God. He created all things by the power of his voice. He showed them that man is his special creation. He revealed to them that Adam sinned against him, and the rest of mankind suffers the effects of Adam's sin. Not just in the consequences of sin, but in the fact that each one of us is sinful. The flood event shows us that the sin is a heart problem, not a behavioral problem. He showed them that he will defeat the serpent, who is Satan. He showed them the connection between Abram and Noah, and they will soon see that Abram is their ancestor. There's so much more that God will tell the Israelites throughout the first five books of the Bible, but this is what they know up to this point. God is unfolding the plan to defeat Satan, and we're at the beginning stages. And as you know, Genesis isn't just for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. It's for us, too. And it unfolds our history as Christians. We may not be the biological descendants of Abraham, but we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Take a look at Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. It's not the biological descendants of Abraham who are the children of God. The children of the promise are the children of God. And this includes both Jews and Gentiles. We in Christ are the children of God, and Abraham is our father of the faith, so his story is important to us as well. God created man sinless, yet moved by his hate for God, Satan provoked Adam and Eve to sin, causing a massive disruption in God's created order. As a result, God will destroy Satan. As we see the Genesis story unfold, we know what God is doing. He's bringing the offspring of the woman to defeat Satan, and that offspring is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a serious advantage over the Old Testament believers. They had the promise, yet not seen. We, on the other hand, can look back on history and see how God fulfilled his promise to destroy Satan. In some way, we're like the Israelites. We're still waiting for the promised resurrection. But at least from our vantage point, we see the promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. So we read the book of Genesis knowing how the story ends. Jesus wins. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.